Well, good morning. Hi, my name is Nick Allen. Um, I've been worried leading up to this point in the series um, that you wouldn't be able to take me seriously today, um, seeing as how you've been watching me on that video doing my pull-up clap motion. Um, <laughs> that was a lie. I didn't, that was not me in the video. I did teach that guy how to do that move. Um, that was also a lie, sorry. I, I, sh- I realized that I shouldn't have started out today with two untruths um, and still expect you to believe the other things that I'm going to say today, but I am going to have to ask you to follow along because we're going to encounter um, a portion of God's Word today that I do think makes an incredible difference for us. Um, today we're rounding third base in our 40-day challenge series. Unless you've been under a rock, you've already figured out at this point that every single component in the 40-day challenge series has begun with the letter F. Um, we began with our foundation of faith in Christ and what it means to put our trust in Him. And, and then we moved into what it means to live a faithful life in Christ. We talked about putting Him first in our family and in our friendships and also in our finances. And, and now we land on that word faith again today. But but faith in a different aspect of what it means to put our complete and total trust in God with regard to the challenges that we all face and the things that naturally cause us anxiety and naturally cause us um, to worry and to feel the need to control specifically aspects of our life. And in life, we often categorize people based on their most outstanding character trait. Like we would say entering a room that we were referring to somebody, oh, the tall guy in the corner or the girl with the red hair standing over there. Um, You can go deeper and begin to characterize someone based on who they are and how they serve. Like Brad, he's a doctor or uh, Darren, he's a graphic artist. But there's a subtle difference here. You see, you can describe people based on their character traits, but you define them based on their composition. Nick Allen may have brown eyes, a weathered brow and rugged good looks. But he is a husband, a father, and the family pastor here at Rolling Hills. The same is true of you. Um, If you want to make it easier in terms of illustrations, you could take, I don't know, for example, a chocolate chip cookie. Um, Chocolate chips are but a single ingredient in that cookie, and yet they are the title ingredient. Um, They're the most noteworthy characteristic of the cookie, the one thing that makes it stand out, the one thing that sets it apart and makes it different, but it's not what makes the cookie a cookie. We would never say, mm, you have got to come over here and try some of these baking powder cookies. Um, the chocolate chips may characterize the cookie. Um, they can describe the cookie, but they aren't what defines the cookie. Ultimately, they contribute very little in turning those ingredients into an actual cookie. And now we're all hungry. Lunch is coming soon, I promise. There's a difference between something that characterizes a person and something that composes a person. Think with me beyond any of the standout character traits in your life and go to the specific moments. Valedictorian, that may describe you, but it doesn't define you. Um, Single mom may characterize you, but it doesn't compose you. You're more than what you've accomplished. You're more than what you've done in life and you are more than what has happened to you. Our faith in God easily falls into that same trap. We tend to want to celebrate and exercise and exasperate the characteristics of a person's faith rather than what really composes it. Your faith may be characterized by a few key difficult moments that you have stretched and been victorious over by the faith and the promise of God. You've moved forward through something that's difficult and you now follow God better than you did before. That characterizes your faith. But what composes your walk with Jesus is all of the daily decisions that you make to say prayers, read scripture, attend church, serve the local body. There is a difference between what characterizes us 
and what composes us, what describes us, and what defines us. Our faith, as taught to us by Scripture, is a gift from God. It's given to us so that no one can boast. It's a gift from Him to us. Um, Our faith is tested by the fiery trials that we face in life, and it's ultimately proven by those. Our faith is characterized by obedient risks, the giant steps of faith that we take over time for God, but it's defined by the long-haul obedience of daily trusting in Him. Our faith also grows, and it moves through stages. And to illustrate that, I wanted to show how the stages of our life are really good examples of what our faith is in Jesus. And so I welcome some friends today so that you don't just get to look at me for the next few minutes. Um, Annalise and Ivy Rose Akers, it's like homecoming. They are escorted today by their father, Keith Akers. But don't pay any attention to him. It's really the girls that are important right now. Here they come. Hi, guys. Ivy Rose is six months old and Annalise is four years old. Um, And I realize now by bringing such pretty girls on stage, you're now focusing on them and you're not going to pay attention to anything else that I say. When you consider what it is to come to God in a childlike faith, I I think that that's really well represented by Ivy Rose. Because at six months old, all she knows is that when there is a need to meet, she just cries out. And then someone comes. And not only do they meet the need, they have to interpret it in the first place to know what it is she actually wants. When you're this age, having faith means that someone who loves you meets all your needs. And at this point, that's all the initial believer in Jesus Christ needs to know. And then as we establish that faith in Christ and it begins to grow, we start to test the boundaries of that faith. Annalise is not testing you guys at all, is she? Nope, but it it will come, right? (laughs) Because we all get to those moments where we have an established faith and yet we know that we want to push towards the edges of what it means to trust in Jesus. We continue to move in our faith journey. This is pictured really easily by an elementary school kid. Evan Ingmeyer is here today. Um, Evan is an identical twin. um, And uh, I'm assuming that uh, you are Evan, right? Awesome, come on up, buddy. You're standing right here with me. Evan is in the fourth grade and he's part of our ministry at Rolling Hills. And just a couple of weeks ago, we got to celebrate um, Evan's decision to trust Christ and to be baptized. So he's got his I Have Decided t-shirt on today. When we move into that elementary stage of faith, we are excited and we're a risk taker. Elementary faith is when having faith means dreaming big, discovering truth and taking risks. There is a part of all of our faith journey where we just wanna go big or go home for God, that we want to experience what it is to have more of Him, more of life, more of His Spirit living in us and showing us what it means to follow Christ. We long by the gift of faith that's been planted inside of us to grow in Him and to test our legs. And then we continue to move, we continue to grow, we continue to experience new aspects of our life. I think that the next phase is really well represented by what it means to be in high school. Noah, are you here? I get really nervous when I think that they might not be. Oh, yes, awesome. Noah Clark is a sophomore at Renaissance High School just up the street from Rolling Hills. And uh, for the maturing faith, um, for the, you're taller than I am now, I think. Is that true? I'm just getting nervous. Just like a high school kid is making big decisions about the future, um, we make those kind of decisions in our faith too. And this stage of faith means owning who you are and honing what you believe. It's when your faith really starts to take shape. 
Um, It's when you begin to become a unique representation of who you are in Jesus Christ. I've known Noah for a lot of, like eight years. And he was a little elementary school kid when I met him. And now he's moved all the way through elementary, all the way through middle. And now he's in high school. And seeing him now and how that faith has been developed really over the last year and a half to two years, it's amazing to see what God can do in the life of a believer. This kid puts in a prayer request every week, almost every week, um, asking us as a staff and as a prayer team to pray for his school. Um, to pray for friends who don't know Christ, um, to pray for him so that he'll be protected from temptation so that he can be a good example of what it means to walk in a life of faith. I love that. I love knowing that there is an understanding of the decisions that have to be made to walk fully with Christ. Knowing that he doesn't know all the answers yet, but being willing to put that faith in God. As our faith continues to grow, uh, we don't arrive at an adult faith, but we move through an adult faith. Um, Kyra, are you here? This is Kyra Carr. Um, She's a mom and a wife, um, and she's one of our ministers at Rolling Hills who serves in the mom-to-mom ministry. Um, Just by the nature of being alive uh, and, and being at this stage, you know that she must have weathered storms and watched God move in tremendous ways. The adulthood phase of our faith comes when our faith is tested, when it is proved, and also when it's extended to include the faith of others in your care. You see, Kyra's faith isn't just about her. It can't be. There's a daughter. There's a son. Both who have been entrusted to her. There's a husband that she partners in life with, not to mention all of the other moms that by answering her call to ministry, she invests in as a mom-to-mom mentor leader. The last part of our faith journey really begins to blossom when we see and realize the ways that our faith lived out can impact and invest in the lives of others around us. And so the cycle begins as someone new puts their faith in Jesus, as they grow and experiment and take big risks for him, as they understand how that faith governs their decisions in life and ultimately as we see how that faith extends to others. Thank you guys for being here today. You were fantastic props. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. See you. Thanks, Kyra. (laughs) Knowing that our faith was never meant to be stagnant, knowing that we will never fully arrive into the fullness of the faith that God has for us in Jesus Christ, knowing that it's a journey that we take all the days that we live until we land in heaven before our creator to worship him and him only. Here's the deal. Our faith is always meant to be moving, growing, and developing. And last week, Pastor Jeff concluded his talk on finances with Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. I'll read it again. It says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That word serve in the Old Test- New Testament Greek is the word doulos. And what it really means is slave to a master. This serve means slave. It's not like having an employer because, you know, you can have multiple employers at the same time. I myself have held down multiple jobs at once in my life, and you might have too. You can have many employers, but you can only have one master. And the implication going into the next passage of Scripture is that we have this one master, and it is the living God. And so we read Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 today. It says, therefore, I tell you, therefore, since you have one master, the living God, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And pause for a second. 
Because in a room this size with five people, much less 50 or 100, we know that there have been moments in in many lives where you have sat back and wondered, do you even matter? Are you of any value? Are you important? In spite of the ugliness of our sin, the Bible tells us that we are. Are you not more important than they? For anybody that's ever wrestled with feelings of loneliness or depression or anxiety because you just don't know if anything about your life counts, we can stand on the promise of God that reads, are you not of more value? You do matter. You are valuable. Jesus continues, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Memory verse alert, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. May the reading of God's word impact who we are. This word anxious, it's ultimately the opposite of the faith that we're talking about today. In some translations of scripture, it reads as worry, which is easy for us to talk about because we all do it. It's the Greek word marinao, and it literally means to be anxious, to be troubled with cares, to care for, to look out for a thing, to seek to promote one's own interests. Sum it all up, it's control. It's in your notes today. Worry is ultimately a lack of trust, a failure to act on the belief that God is who he says he is. Worry for the infant stage believer says, who will help me? Worry for the elementary stage believer says, I can do it myself. Worry for the high school stage believer says, why does it even matter? And worry for the adult believer says, it's not working. And in each one of those stages, when we invoke worry as a pattern in our life, what we are ultimately saying to the God of this universe is, I don't think you love me enough to care for me. Or I don't think you are big enough to know and do what's best. At the end of it all, the scorching heat of worry in our lives is standing before the great God of this universe and saying to him, I can do a better job than you can. Worry is a complete misunderstanding of what is best. And that is who God is and what he does. The problem, the biggest problem with our interpretation of worry is this. Human wisdom says we have a lot to worry about. We have every reason to worry. It makes sense. There are scary things in life. There are difficult circumstances in life. We also know that our life will not last forever and we don't know how many days of it that we have left. There are lots of reasons to worry. Worry is actually a very natural response to any of the external forces and the internal struggles that we face in life. But just because something is natural doesn't make it blank. Fill it in with whatever you want to. Beneficial, sustainable, right, 
healthy, helpful. Just because something is natural doesn't make it anything that is good for us. And yet we take on worry because it's a natural response to the struggles that we face in life. There are acceptable levels of worry. Whoa, that's a big deal. We call those concern. There are unacceptable levels of worry. We call those fears. If you live on a busy street, an acceptable level of worry, concern, says hold your five-year-old's hand when crossing it. An unacceptable level of worry, which we call fear, says my child is not loud outside of the house. One is helpful, the other is not. One is responsible concern and the other is irrational fear. And we know that we teeter along the edge of both when it comes to our worries. The main challenge in understanding scripture today is figuring out why it is that Jesus chose to address worry in that context and what on earth does it say to us in ours today. The bottom line is that worry for the first century Jew, the audience of the day, worry prevented them from fully knowing God. The bottom line for us today, 2015, why Jesus would say this to us is that worry prevents us from fully knowing God. Not just believers and unbelievers alike. In 2013, a Harris poll concluded that only 29% of Americans, 29%, 29% when more than half of us claim to be Christians, 29% are the only ones who believe that God actually controls what happens on the earth. We could do an entire series of messages on worry. We could do Bible study after Bible study and weekly homework and small group exercises full of devotions of why worry is an inappropriate response for the faith-filled believer. But we got 30 minutes this morning, so we need to dive in quick. A key component to unlocking the truth behind any specific passage of scripture is understanding the meaning for the original audience. Listen to the context in which those people that sat on a hillside listening to the words of Jesus, listen to the context in which they lived. Straight from an NIV commentary and people who are far smarter than I am. Okay. Everyday life in the cities of the ancient world was far different than even the most difficult circumstances of urban life in the modern world. With very limited water supply and means of sanitation, the incredible density of humans and animals is beyond our imagination. Tenement cubicles were smoky, dark, often damp, and always dirty. The smell of sweat, urine, feces, and decay permeated everything. Outside on the street, it was little better. Mud, open sewers, manure, and crowds. In fact, human corpses, both adult and infant, were sometimes just pushed into the street and abandoned. For the most part, Jesus' audience on the hillside that day was among the poor. They lived with very harsh realities and anxiety about how they were going to live to the next day and to care for and supply a future for their children in the process. The work of the land on the Galilean countryside was literally farm to table. That's like a trendy thing now. It was a necessity thing back then. Farm to table. If this year's harvest, we needed it to be enough for us, our animals, and to seed next year's crop or else we wouldn't have that either. Some people worked their own land, but that was rare. Most were, most were tenant farmers working the land of someone else, which means that a portion of what they farmed had to go back to the landowner. And everybody, whether you were a landowner or a tenant farmer, a portion of what you made, a high portion, had to go to the Roman government because there was heavy taxation in the entire area. And the Rome, Rome was living off of other people. They were maintaining a high standard of living off of the hard work of other people. So maybe, just maybe the most telling aspect of this specific passage of scripture is the fact that 
Jesus didn't choose to address any of the insurmountable problems faced by the people that day. Instead, he chose to focus on simple little details of life. You want to know why? Because to those people, the simple little details of life were the big insurmountable problems. They lived under the forceful external opposition of the Roman Empire. They lived under the judgmental, watchful eye of Pharisaic law and a ruling class of Jews that often told them, you are less than in God's kingdom. They lived with a heightened sense of messianic expectation, but a very real fear that God was going to allow yet another generation to go by without fulfilling the promise that he had made to their ancestors in the Old Testament. Beyond that, they lived with unbelievably horrible living conditions concerning their daily provision and how they could meet their most basic needs. And instead of jumping to the big insurmountable problems of Rome, he went with the daily basic needs and told them, don't worry about that stuff. During his entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught people that their current chaos, he taught them in their current chaos what it meant to live in light of a coming kingdom. You fast forward not even one generation into a different context, but Paul reiterates those same words of Jesus into a church, the Philippians. Chapter four, verse six, it says, do not be anxious. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Don't be anxious. Just like the contemporaries of Jesus' ministry, this early church had plenty to worry about. Disease was still rampant. Poverty was still rampant. Oppression had now turned into the persecution of the early church of believers. And in the middle of all that, Paul prayed that, Paul never prayed that people's circumstances would improve, but only that they would know God better. I read that in a book this year by Tim Keller, and you know what? He's right. Check out Ephesians chapter one. It says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is what he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul looked at a people who were poor and told them that God wanted to open their eyes and reveal to him, them the knowledge of him so that they could walk in the riches of his glory. He looked at a people who were desperate and told them, that he had been called to a hope that would sustain them. And it was always about whether or not they would know God better because the knowledge of him could satisfy every concern and every worry and every doubt and every anxiety and every fear. Paul instructed them to make their petition known to God, but his own personal petition was never that their circumstances would change, but always that they would know him better. Here's why. He goes on in Philippians chapter four, verse six, moving into verse seven to say, again, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and the minds in Christ Jesus. We've heard that guard your heart before. It comes from the Old Testament. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Guarding your heart is great instruction until you realize that you're incapable of doing it on your own. I love that what the Old Testament instructs us to do, the New Testament provides a Christ who will do it for us. The beauty of the gospel story is in our inability to manage our own anxiety and to guard our own hearts 
and that God grants us peace through Jesus Christ that guards our hearts for us. This guarding of the heart is above our pay grade. It's outside of our comprehension and our skill set because worry makes sense. Faith rarely does. But one is both the result of peace and the path to peace. And the other is futile. The choice between the two is a deliberate one that we all have to make. And hopefully it's the one to stop being anxious, to stop letting worry move beyond concern and into levels of control where we try to manage all of the details of our lives. Remember, human wisdom says that we have every reason to worry, but godly truth says we have just one solution to eliminate that worry. It's God. Why do we worry? Because we think it's effective. Why shouldn't we worry? Well, Matthew 6, 27, Jesus said, who among you can add a single hour to his life by worrying? It's not even effective. It doesn't even accomplish the goal for which we set it. Worry doesn't help. Why do we worry? Because we assume it's effective and also because we think that we can meet our needs better than God. Jesus debunked that theory too because in Matthew 6, 29, he said, even Solomon, his glory was not clothed like one of these. And to the audience of that day, To say to them, even Solomon wasn't rich enough. Even Solomon wasn't wise enough. Even Solomon wasn't faithful enough. Even Solomon in all of his splendor still didn't do as good of a job dressing himself as God did lilies in a field. It told those people that they had no hope of being able to manage their lives on their own. If Solomon couldn't do it, then we certainly can't do it. Jesus told them, you can't do better. I read a great blog this week by Beth Moore. Here's my man card. I like Beth Moore Bible studies because she's wise. She writes with regard to something that she gleaned from Charles Spurgeon. You are aboard such a large ship that you would be unable to steer it even if your captain placed you at the helm. So stop trying. Even with the best of intentions, we would steer that ship right into an iceberg like the Titanic with all of our loved ones aboard. She goes on to say that our trials are allowed unpack that, God allows us to walk through trials so that Christ may be formed in us and that through us we can serve a greater purpose. Worry always, oh Beth, she's smart, worry always and only forms thicker flesh on us and weighs us down until we cannot walk where the Spirit would take us. Worry is heavy. We can't do better than God. We will sink the ship and we will add weight to our life that makes it impossible for us to follow him well. No matter what we think, our worry is ultimately a fight for control. And regardless of what we think, our control will always end badly. Why do we worry? Because we think it's effective. Because we think we can meet our needs better than God. And finally, another reason, one that we don't like to talk about, sin. We don't view worry as an affront to Almighty God. But in Matthew 6, 32, Jesus pointed it out because he said, for the Gentiles seek after such things. And you have to know what this audience would have thought about Gentiles in this moment. To say that the Gentiles seek after all of those things meant that people who have no faith in God seek after all those things. The Gentiles, people who have no faith, people who have no trust, people who do not worship the same God that you do, those people seek after those things. So if you wanna be like those people, then go ahead. Jesus is saying to them that 
to worry about what you're gonna eat and worry about what you're gonna drink and to not trust the living God to handle those needs for you is an actual sin. It's an affront to the righteousness of God. It's an insult to his power. It's a disbelief in his provision and it's a mistrust of his love. And perhaps the first thing that we ought to do whenever we encounter the sin of worry in our lives is not try to figure out how to manage it or eliminate it or to lay it down, but to repent of it in the first place because we're coming before a holy God to say to you, I'm sorry for worrying because I know that by worrying, I'm attempting to take control over the helm of my life. I'm telling you that I can do a better job than you can. I'm ascribing to you that you don't love me enough and that you're not big enough to do the thing that ought to be done for me, what is best in the first place. And so my worry, my attempt to control these aspects of my life is ultimately just me saying to God, I'm better than you are. And so God, I repent of that today. I tell you that I'm sorry forever living my life in pursuit of things that indicate to you that I don't believe you're good. That's a hard pill to swallow. But the truth often is. So how do we escape worry? It certainly sounds easier said than done. But Jesus gives us the answer in the passage. He says, therefore do not be anxious. Skip, 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 skip. Illustration, illustration, illustrations. But seek first. We seek first the kingdom of God. We don't seek it second, we don't seek it last, and we don't seek it in addition to all the other things that we're seeking in life. We seek it first and only. It's trusting in God to provide what we need and it requires us to act on the belief that we have a father who sees us and knows our needs. A father who pays attention. The word seek is the Greek word zeteo, and it literally means to search for and to crave. It's not just seeking like you're looking for something, it's seeking like you're looking for something valuable, something of primary importance in your life, something with everything that you have. To seek bears the connotation of to worship. We seek God first by placing him as the supreme authority in our lives and by giving him the worth that he is due by our words and our actions and our lack of worry because we tell him, God, Regardless of what happens, I trust you. And so how do we seek first? Well, first we, we, we keep things in perspective. And 634 tells us that every single day has, and don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Let tomorrow worry about itself. We keep things in proper perspective. Susan and I have daughters who are 15 months apart. Um, and so if you do some quick mathematical equation in your mind, you realize that we discovered daughter number two when daughter number one was only six months old. People say, oh, that's great, did you plan? Who does that? Who says, hey, this six months is going really well, let's just go out and what in the world? That was, there's no such thing as an accident, but there are oftentimes surprises with the Lord and we were excited about it, but we were also nervous by it because there was a lot of anticipation that went into be, I am, you know, the parents of twins, way to go. It's like we had twins, but we were pregnant twice as long. Okay, so we get these two girls and they're basically infants. How do you teach one kid to walk? and one kid to breathe at the same time. I mean, that's a lot to manage. And there was anxiety that went up into that. There was a fear and a sense of, can we handle everything that God is putting in front of us? And the good thing about pregnancy is that it's 40 weeks. And I believe that God gives us those 40 weeks because that's how long it takes a baby to grow and be ready for the world. But that's also maybe how long it takes us to get ready for the changes that are coming in life. And we didn't need the faith and the trust and the skill set to be the parents of two kids until we were the parents of two kids. In pregnancy, just pop that prenatal and make sure you're getting enough rest at night. <laughs> but when both came, 
God showed up with enough strength and enough faith and enough substance to get us through the day. I'm convinced that the reason why we hold the lamp of his word to our feet, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet, it's because if the lamp was up here, we could see far too great in the distance. But when the lamp is held to our feet, we just get the one step at a time that God knows we can handle. Max Lucado says that we are to meet today's problems with today's strength. Don't start tackling tomorrow's problems until tomorrow. You don't have enough strength yet. You simply have enough for today. An easy remedy for worry is gratitude. Paul said that. Make your petitions and prayers known to God with thanksgiving. When you focus on God's blessings instead of what you feel is lacking about your life, worry evaporates. The way that we seek God first is to keep things in perspective and also the way that we seek God first is to see and know that he is God. Psalm 27.4 reads, One thing I have asked of you that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, we know that the seek and the inquire in this verse come from the same root word. It's bakar and bakash. And it means to seek, to meditate, to inquire. All indicating desire. So for Jesus to say seek first to this audience, it meant to worship first, meditate first, inquire first. He knows our needs. He alone can meet our needs. And he will reveal himself to us in the process so that we can what? Answer Paul's prayer, to know him better. The journey of faith that we face in life ultimately has within it the goal that we would know God better. You know, Jesus did not dismiss the fears of those hillside believers by saying, forget your worry, flowers and birds are okay, so you'll be fine too. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33 doesn't exist to tell you that your problems don't exist. This passage doesn't serve to diminish your problems, it serves to remind you that there is a God who knows your needs and he is fully able to meet them. Today we are invited to consider the simple details of our everyday life and also the big dramatic issues that we will undoubtedly face and to trust Jesus anyway the big stuff that describes us and the day-to-day that defines us. In some ways, we're invited to pull an Ivy Rose Acres who simply cries out and waits for someone to both interpret and to meet that need. How silly would it be for that little girl to try and change her own diaper? And after multiple layers of failed attempts, finally giving in to crying out so that someone else will come and do it for her, It makes no sense, but it's what we often do. Sitting in the own stench of our sin and problems in life, trying to maneuver any manner of method to get it all taken care of ourselves and finally realizing at the end of it that we can't and we need help. How often do we rely on our own wisdom and our own power before finally settling back and choosing to trust in God? Why in the world would he in his sovereignty ever be our last resort when he is always the very best choice? Some of us today are afraid and we have every reason to be. 
According to human wisdom, there are scary things out there in the world and we have every reason to be afraid. But Psalm 56.3 says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. It doesn't say because I have no fear, I rely on God. It says, when I am afraid, I trust in you. Worry is probably not the absence of fear, but the evidence that our faith is being attacked. And we are to trust God to help us not only weather the specific storm of our life, but to also resist the temptation to give in to the worry in the first place. I learned this week also, Beth Moore again, that worry is like waving a flag in front of our enemy, indicating that the person worrying does not trust God and is susceptible to a new attack. Wow. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on God. It doesn't say that you will never have anxiety in the first place. There are certainly external forces and internal struggles surrounding us at every single corner of our life. It does not say that we will not face anxiety, but it says when we do, stop, see it, and know that God is who he says he is and lay it at him. We don't stop our worry because we are able to stop our worry. We stop our worry because the peace of God in Christ Jesus is able to guard our hearts for us. The deal with worry is that we do have a reason for it. The deal with my worry is that there are very good reasons for it. In my everyday life and in the seasonal overwhelming circumstances that I face, worry makes sense. But the deal with worry is also that we have a really big reason to flee from it. His name is Yahweh. He's the God of this universe. And according to Jesus, he sees our need. Matthew 6, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If worry describes you, if worry defines you, it doesn't have to. You can seek first. You can have new perspective. You can know God better in the process. Would you pray with me today? Holy God, we are overwhelmed by your word. Even the parts of it that are really familiar um, can yield new wisdom. God, I'm fully aware of the fact that this room is full of believers and unbelievers alike who have very different stories and very different struggles. And I tell you today that I trust you to meet them all. Just like I trusted you to speak specifically into the heart and the mind of each life, I trust you to prove yourself again to be a God who hears us knows us and does what's best for us even when it's hard God to let collectively today Father we want to say to you that we do trust you and that we do not want our worry born out of concern to transition into control where we inadvertently say to you that we don't think you're big enough or we don't think you love us enough 
But instead, we want to tell you today that it is our heart's desire for you to work in us and transform us into people who seek you first and who ultimately know you more. Oh God, may we be a people who know you better. Father, may I be a person who knows you better when I leave this place than I did when I came in this place because your word transforms me. Oh God, may I trust you. It's in the name of Jesus, your son, that we pray today. Amen.